0: This is the Future of HR Podcast, episode 50. I wish more HR people
1: would question whether their bonus plans are worth it. Like, this is the comp person who's supposed to be in charge of telling you for pay for performance. And I have never seen a bonus plan that the company feels confident is working for its intended purpose. And what I mean by that is the bonus plan alone is meant to exist to drive incremental performance But I can't tell you a single HR team that can actually prove that that's the case.
0: Why is it so important that your organization has a fair pay model? How can HR leaders lean into compensation design and execution? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast. The only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career, to the next level. My guest today is David Buckmaster. David's an experienced total rewards leader with companies like Stability AI, Nike, Starbucks, and Yum Brands. And while David is a compensation expert, he's also a terrific writer. In 2018, he was named to the global shortlist of the Financial Times and McKinsey & Company, Brackenbauer Prize for Emerging Business Writers. His book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses, not only looks at the history of compensation, but tackles the compensation challenges of our day. It's an important, pragmatic, and educational book for all HR and business leaders And I encourage you to pick it up. In our conversation today, David and I discuss why he wishes more HR leaders would question if their current bonus plan is really worth it, why he believes the more transparent a company is about pay, the more formulaic their pay model tends to be, the four elements of his fair pay model and how you apply it to your organization, his tips for negotiating a pay increase or a new job offer and why he believes it's not a good idea to share your salary expectations with a recruiter and much more. David, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you on the podcast and talk about your book. You are one of the few, or maybe many to come, total rewards professionals that have come on the podcast. We're excited to hear about your perspective, your career journey, And your great book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Gap and Build a Stronger Business. I want to start off, though, and talk about your early career and what led you to focus on compensation, total rewards as a profession.
1: You know, compensation, this is one of those questions I ask everybody that I interview for my team. It's like, how did you get into compensation? And the answer that I get most often, which is true for me, also, is by mistake. Right. Like it's not something that people know exists. And then when we tell people family or friends or whatever, they assume we do payroll or something like nobody knows that at bigger companies, they have this team of people that get curled away in the corner and they just look at Excel data all day and they try and figure out how to distribute the budget in a way that keeps everybody happy. So my personal journey, like I started in a broader HR role in, in the no profit world, actually. So I was in the nonprofit world and then I realized that there's only so much compensation experience you can get when you work in non-profit because, you know, there's no equity plans. There's no bonus plans, really. The uh, talent market's not super dynamic. So it's just kind of running the same programs over and over again. And so eventually I uh, went up the road to Starbucks headquarters and worked uh the coffee giant. And I was doing a retail compensation for them. So, you know, all of a sudden you've got a roster of, you know, 200,000 people and you're making pay decisions for every barista in the country. It's really was really enlightening for me. I then took a role with Yum Brands, which is a parent of KFC Pizza and Hut and Taco Bell. And I know we have some overlap there in our histories. And I, so I went there and led international for them. So I was working with like brand partners and all of the corporate composition folks. And then, um, Decided, my family just—we really wanted to get back to the Pacific Northwest. This was long before COVID, before people normalized remote work, and we just said, "You know what? Texas isn't cutting it for us. We like—we'd like to get back to the Northwest." So I took a role with Nike, and so I did broad-based conversation for them for about five years. From there, went into gaming, and then now I'm at a an AI company. So we do generative AI, which is a fascinating space.
0: That's a fascinating career you've had, and. I love how you went from the nonprofit, challenge yourself, move to the bigger corporations where you not only did kind of retail, front line compensation, international, now broad base, and then high tech. So you've kind of seen it all at this point, it sounds like, in your experiences. Is that correct, David? You feel like, is there anything in compensation you haven't seen yet? Every day, I feel like there's something new. I think
1: in its core, comp is just answering like the same five questions over and over again, right? But it is, I think, important for people in this field to have exposure to different types of industries, you know, especially I'm, I'm highly motivated by, you know, trying to learn new things. And, you know, in my background, I've tried to do that. So now I'm in the startup world, which is just dramatically different than being in a big company. You and I were talking before the podcast, like, you know, when I was at Nike I never had to worry that somebody forgot to pay the light bill, but now I've kind of figured out, okay, how do I do this? And oh, by the way, we don't have a bank account in this location yet. So it's, you're doing that at the same time as you're, you're getting to build with the. A blank sheet of paper, which is a lot of fun. So I think if you've only worked at big companies, you should give a startup a go and vice versa. I think everybody should have a nice mix of experiences because it will stretch them in unique ways.
0: That's great advice. And you have worked at some big companies that are known and really well run. Nike, Starbucks, Yum! Brands, you talked about. How do these companies impact your philosophy and approach to total rewards?
1: I think they were, it was everything. What those three companies have in common is The majority of their people are what we might call frontline workers, right? They are, they're working in restaurants, they're working in retail shops, distribution centers, manufacturing, that kind of thing. This is kind of the genesis and the core of the book. It's like, just to talk about what I think is going wrong for for compensation and the way we think about this for those populations. I think it is very true that like the lower you are in the organization, the harder it is to get a pay increase, right? Because like all sorts of structural things just happen at that level of the organization. And frankly, like the less attention that the head of HR puts on that population, and I know that they might not say this, but it it just is true. You know, I think what I learned specifically is that there can also be structural barriers, like legal structural barriers, to actually fixing some of these problems. So I spent a good chunk of the time talking about of the book, talking about what does it look like in a in a franchise model? Uh, is this really set up in a way that can even have a fighting chance at getting you know people pay increases or? does it actually elevate the need for something like a minimum wage that sort of acts as a counter lever? So I think there's a lot of this book that is not just the nuts and bolts of how does compensation work. But what I wanted to do is to try and step back and say, like, here's why things are hard. Here's why everybody doesn't feel paid fairly, like at all times. Like Pay is one of those things that we are so ill-equipped to talk about as HR leaders or or as just employees or just as general participants of society, right? Like this is one of those things that we all know is sort of broken. We don't know how to fix it. And so my best efforts are in this book from both a policy lens, a corporate lens, and also I, how do I get a raise personally kind of lens, right? So it, it presented kind of a unique branding problem, I think, for the publisher. Say, so what is this book? It's all of the above. But to me, seeing this day in and day out, that's like the only way you can tell this story is to take a comprehensive approach to it.
0: Well, obviously, you're really passionate about this. And I'm curious to know a little bit more about what was the motivation to write the book, because I imagine a lot of Total Rewards professionals, HR leaders are seeing some of the same challenges you have, but not all of us picked up the pen (laughs) and wrote out a book that really tried to tackle some of the biggest challenges, frankly, not only in our society, but in sometimes our HR organizations themselves. So what was the motivation there for you? for me I love writing like I always
1: have I've loved writing like like going sort of deep into my early adult years like I would write book reviews and sort articles for magazines and that kind of thing my mom was a librarian I've always just been around books and writing it's always just been a huge passion of mine uh actually when I was at YAM I was sort of going through this like personal and career low point of my life I was just like I was not I was not in a good spot and I knew that one one part of that was geographic location like for me, I needed to be around trees and water. And we were in Dallas, which is kind of the antithesis of that. And But what I knew would sort of get me, I guess, whole again, is just getting back into my hobbies and writing and taking a backseat. I remember speaking with the chief people, of one of the brands that I had found out that I'd written for this, like this humor publication called McSweeney's, which is like, it's like really hard to get something published in McSweeney's. So I was super proud of it. And he sort of looked at me and just like, you know, what, what the heck are you doing with your life? Why aren't you writing? And, and so you know, took, ended up taking the job with Nike, fixed the geographic problem, started writing again, submitted a, a proposal to this prize called the Brackenbauer Prize, which is put on by McKinsey and the Financial Times. Was fortunate to get sort, globally shortlisted for that. And that led to an agency agreement and then a, a book deal with, with HarperCollins. I mean, the whole thing was incredibly surreal because I'm sort, I'm sort of doing this like in the reverse order. You know, I think a lot of people, they will, um you know, they'll have a really awesome career. And then at the end of it, they'll sort of capstone it with a, here's what I learned, you know, and then they'll sort of go into the give back phase of their career. Like I'm, I'm doing this in the reverse. Like right now, as we're talking, I'm also monitoring my Slack notes because I'm an active practitioner in this space and I've got difficult things I've got to sort through. So I think at the core of it, a lot of this book was about self-discovery, but also I just felt that it understood a problem in a way that, that others didn't have exposure to. Not that I had necessarily any unique insights, but I wanted to share how,
0: does, how do I see this working
1: and where do I think it's going wrong and how do we fix it together? Like that, That's the core of this book.
0: It's a great book and I'm glad you wrote it. I do think it's, again, something that you right is a little unique. You did it a little bit differently. And congratulations on getting the book done. But I think there's a lot of reasons why HR professionals and leaders should read this book. You'll learn a lot and I think it'll make you think. I'm curious, David, as you work with HR leaders, there's probably one or two areas where you wish you go, gosh, I wish those HR leaders better understood compensation about this. What are those one or two areas where you feel like HR could know more or understand compensation better?
1: Well, the first thing is I have to engage in it. I think comp is like the one area of HR where it it feels okay to not participate in for a lot of HR people. Some will say, well, I'm not a math person. Um, like to me, what you what I'm hearing when you say that is I'm willing to limit my career, you know, to a certain extent, because I don't think you can be a successful chief HR officer and not understand at least the core mechanics of this. I've had the good fortune to have some chief HR officers who are who are really well versed in it. My my current one is like an axe towers consultant. Like she challenges me on everything, which is wonderful. And so the first step is you have to engage in it. Like it is a core part of what you do. If you really want to be seen as a business partner, you need to understand what for most companies is your biggest uh, business expense and how to manage it. So I've never understood that disconnect, how a lot of HR people can just say this this part of it isn't for me. Like that to me is a sort of self-admission that you're not necessarily taking your job all that seriously. Just to put a very blunt point on it. I also think like paying people, like fair pay sometimes just means saying no. I, I think what, if you understand like the core temperature of this, of this field is that everybody wishes they were getting paid more at all times. Like it doesn't matter if you are at the, where you are on that career spectrum, you know, you can be a senior executive or the most junior employee, everybody sort of wishes they were making more at any given time, but you have to have the right frameworks and guidelines in place to understand that if I say yes to this thing and I have a, and I'm presented with a similar scenario, I can't just say no to it. So you have to step back and say, okay, well, this doesn't sort of meet our criteria. This doesn't seem like it's setting the company up well. Because as an HR leader or as a, and as a comp leader, I'm I'm sort of optimizing for the company, whereas an employee, you're optimizing for yourself. Those are not necessarily opposed to each other; they're just different ends. So you have to help people self-select into the type of organization that is going to reward them in the ways that they want to be rewarded in. But well, you've got to tell that story all the way through. And sometimes people are just going to ask for unreasonable things, and you have to be willing to just say no sometimes. So I would say those are those are two. And I might add a bonus one in here because I might as well give a very controversial opinion on this. And I think a lot of comp people will disagree with me on this too. I wish more HR people would question whether their bonus plans are worth it. Like this is the comp person who's supposed to be in charge of telling you for pay for performance. And I have never seen a bonus plan that the company feels confident is working for its intended purpose. And what I mean by that is the bonus plan alone is meant to um, and what I mean by that is like a cash bonus plan that you might get once a year, once a quarter based on performance, right? What it's supposed to do is exist to drive incremental performance, but I can't tell you a single HR team that can actually prove that that's the case. Like did that in like conceptually? Sure. Like it, it makes sense on paper, right? But was it really the performance plan or was it, Hey, you had a great product. You had a, uh, you know, the good fortune. You had people who just work really hard intrinsically. I'm not really sure it's serving you that well. So if you can get away with not having bonus plans and just paying a little bit more in cash or equity or whatever, I think you are going to save yourself a lot of heartbreak and a lot of difficult conversations throughout the year. Like bonus plans are just like that one time in the year where you know you're going to get into fights because no matter what happens, the really excellent person doesn't feel that they're paid enough and so they hold you hostage. The person who's not performing doesn't understand why they're not getting paid. It's just that is my most controversial opinion in conversation and I wish HR people would just... Maybe rethink this a little bit because I don't think it works in most cases outside
0: of maybe like direct sales. When you think about bonus plans that are tied to actual performance, like a sales or other things that we could really measure, then those bonus plans probably have a more of a direct line. But when you do step back, in some ways it becomes a profit sharing plan for a lot of people. And then the determination of the profit sharing plan, which is the bonus plan, is the rating. And I think to your point, that's where the subjectivity comes into play for a lot of folks. And a lot of people actually believe it's an entitlement, right? They're like, hey, I'm not getting my bonus, et cetera. And I'm sure you've heard this many times. But I do think you've got a really interesting point of view on that. And I think there's more companies should try something different, right?
1: right. I think you hit it exactly right. And I'll take it even a step further. I think if you look at the cop data on this, if you look at, I won't share the specifics of a of one of the big survey providers, but it's one that every HR person knows. Like I was looking at this recently to say, okay, so what was like the 10th percentile and the 90th percentile of bonus payments for the year as a percentage target? So meaning if the company bonus plan pays out exactly the target, let's call it a hundred percent, right? It paid out exactly the target. Like the 10th percentile of companies, like the worst performing companies based on their own standards, they were still paying on average of like, you know, 86% or something wild. So it's like you set up this massive administrative, process and all the people to support it for something that really, truly is like a delayed salary payment, because it's exactly what you said. People view it as an entitlement. You have to move mountains to get people to understand you're not getting your bonus this year because of reasons X, Y, and Z, right? Yeah. So I think we we agree that there's room for not saying toss them all out the
0: window, but I am saying think a little bit harder about this HR people. Well, double clicking a little bit there, David, I think the other piece people have is differentiation, right? So we get to the end of the year, And we're like, we want to make sure that our top performers, our high potentials are going to be rewarded and we give them 10% more than an average performer. You know, we're afraid to have a real big differentiation spread, right? Because of everything you said. I think that's one of the biggest gaps in HR. High performance cultures really mean that you are differentiating performance and we should be taking a much bigger stance on that. But it is a challenging thing to do for lots of reasons, which I'm sure everyone listening to right now is thinking, yes, JP, I know why I want to do that. What's your take on it? How do you think about differentiating compensation at the end of year around bonuses? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea of pay for performance is the right one. But I think
1: we need to take a really healthy skepticism at this. I write in the book, there's this, this book that came out, I think it's like the 1950s. It's called The Rise of the Meritocracy by a guy named Michael Young. And so, yeah, we all talk about meritocracy, how great it is, all that stuff. And on an idealized basis, of course, Like if you perform well, you work hard, you get more. Like that's. I don't think that's a controversial point of view. But he actually coined this term meritocracy. And what I think most people don't realize is he wrote this book as a joke. Like the whole point, it's a satire. You know, like, it, it's a guy who's writing about, I, I believe it's like, you know, the university or system or the boarding school system in the UK. And he's basically saying, well, you know, these kids are here because of, because they've earned it. And the ones that are the smartest are, you know, naturally rising to the cream of the crop because they are of, of meritocratic, you know, worthiness. Um And then he wrote a, a revised version of it, and I think in the like 70s or 80s with a foreword on it. He said, hey, listen, I don't think y'all understood. This was a joke. I This was a satire. I, I We all agree that this is a nice goal, but don't assume that it just automatically clicks in. That if you just say these are the best people, that there isn't structures around it that are influencing some of those decisions also. And so it's really fascinating that we sort of adopted this. Like every comp person talks about their annual pay process as the merit process. And it's like, yeah, of course, that's what we're trying to do. But let's step back and look, hey, are there sort of structures around this or biases around it that maybe we're not necessarily cognizant of, you know, or, or do we have budgeting problems at the other end of the spectrum to where I actually can't reward my best people in any differentiated way? I think we've all been at companies where the best performing person gets 4% and the worst performing person gets two and a half percent. And that's just a that's just a matter of like how have you budgeted this with finance and how have you set your performance distribution guidelines. So like this
0: area is ripe for rethinking also. So I spend a bit of time talking about that in the book. It's fascinating that concept around meritocracy. I have to look that up. Let's talk about pay transparency. How do you think about the concept and why is it important?
1: So on a net basis, I think pay transparency is really good and and I'm super supportive of it. Pay transparency, you you hear this phrase a lot. Pay transparency is a spectrum and it's true. There are some companies that just make their entire roster totally public. Everybody in the company, even like on the internet, some companies will just post what everybody makes. And some companies lock everything down, but you can't see anything. You know, they don't give you any information about pay ranges or you have no idea what you're, if you're a manager, you don't even know what your team is making. Like there are, there's a whole variety of this. But what I think is true, especially with some of the legislation, it is forcing some really important changes through our overall ecosystem. I'm broadly in support of being open on some of these things. But what companies also tend to realize is that the more open they get, the more formulaic their pay model tends to need to become, right? Because people will start pressing on these exact issues we've just talked about. It's like, okay, so why is Susie making more than Jill? Tell me again. Maybe her manager is just easier on the grading scale than the other one. Or we've made a false assessment of someone's past experience. And so therefore we've, you know, put them high in the pay range as, as a result. But really, even though they were a big company X, they weren't really doing anything material there. And so because of that, companies will just basically say, okay, we're going to be transparent, but we're going to also replace our ability for nuance and for paying for performance or any, have any sort of discretion. We're going to replace that with a formula. And for some companies, that's going to work great, but like there's always going to be. Uh, you know, that 5% of your people who are truly unique that sort of break the mold and are going to be really hard to fit into that, in that box. And so I would sort of not necessarily caution against going all the way there, all the way there, but just to know your, to what trade, sorts of trade-offs you're making as you walk in. I think a lot of this legislation is actually quite good. I think it's helpful to have people self-select into the types of jobs that are going to pay them and the ways that they should be compensated.
0: Yeah. And I also think it's really mirroring how we're talking about it in society. I think generations today coming up are more comfortable talking about their compensation. And I think it's pushing organizations to be much more transparent about their compensation philosophy and their pay philosophy and how that links to performance. And I think the best organizations are doing that. But what's your perspective on how that sort of shifts the internal dialogue with team members in that organization?
1: I'm not going to say the history of comp because I don't necessarily know it and I'm in my late 30s now. So I haven't exactly been doing this forever. But at least as long as I've been doing this work, comp is one of those things that just is sort of talked about, but not really, like you might have a very generic thing on the company internet page, or you might have very carefully scripted note from the cons and legal and HR leaders to say, here's how we're doing comp for now. But the reality of how comp is working now is that people are just far more open about it. My daughter wanted me on TikTok. So I'm on Reels. So I see all the cool things like two weeks late. And, and so, um, but like, I, I sort of started getting these feeds about people who would just sort of walk up to random people on the, on the streets. Like, hey, how much money do you make? What are you doing? How much money do you make? How'd you get there? And so like, I'm fascinated by this stuff because like the, the sort of up and coming generation is just like, no, you're not, we're not We're not going to allow you to just be totally secret about this. So I think companies are res- are, some are being forced to respond. Some are doing it on a more active basis. And I think overall that's good. I think we should be held accountable. Like I think ultimately companies should have to compete for employees, you know, in the same way they have to compete for customers. Uh, and so I don't, I don't really understand how it serves anybody for that sort of power balance to be entirely shifted to the employee because if you're, or I'm sorry, to the employer, because if the employee is like looking over their shoulder at all times and not trusting you, like they're probably not going to be doing their best work for you either. So I think you're not ever going to get everything right on comp. But I think if you are sincere in the way you talk about it, you're willing to own your mistakes and you're wanting to, and people see you as genuinely wanting to do the right thing. Uh, I think that sort of trust that you build over time builds a like a, a reservoir of goodwill between you and, and the employee. And I think that ultimately leads to uh, uh, positive retention over time.
0: In your book, you talk about what you call fair pay mix. Tell us more about the concept and how it works. So I studied, um, I was an economics major in college
1: until like my last semester. And then I switched to marketing because I thought I could get a job easier. Um, I, I wish I hadn't made that change, but I did. But one of the things that I learned, and I think everybody learns this in business school, is the four P's of marketing, right? So it's the four, the P's are product, price, place, and promotion. And so if you're going to sell, you know, a high-end soap or whatever, you need to make sure that it's probably at a high-end price point. It's at the right high-end shops. You know, you've targeted it to people in that demographic, who can afford it. Like that whole story has to come together for you to be able to resonate with your customers. It's so The guy who made it, I can't recall his name, but like his, his intent, I was reading some of the history and his intent was, okay, so we want to take marketing from the academic realm to the practitioner realm. And I'm not an academic, but I've tried to do the same thing for comp. And so I have sort of blatantly stolen this four P's model and said, so for the four P's for compensation, the compensation mix would be, in my terms, process, permission, priority, and power. And so to just go through all four of those, if you are wanting people to see your compensation programs as fair, you have to think very clearly about the process, about the process you're using to determine comp, meaning what benchmarks do you use? does everyone, is everyone eligible for what things and why? And what sorts of cycles you have in place, refreshes you have in place? The process matters a lot. You can't just like only get people pay increases if they email you and complain or threaten to leave, right? Like that's not going to work. The next P is permission. So have you created the environment where people can ask you about pay without fearing that they might get fired as a result, right? So we just talked about that in terms of, you know, you're not going to get it right. But if you have a dialogue to say, here's why we think this way about pay over time, that sort of creates a level of comfort where people, they might disagree with you. They might want like all of their pay in a totally fundamentally different way than you're willing to deliver it. Like they might want like everything and in, in cash. You're like, you know, some of this is going to be incentive based. But at least they can understand your perspective and you can come to a agree to disagree moment on that. The third P is priority. And so this is what we're talking about with, you know, some of the entry level folks, right? Around, do you make it a priority to look at everybody in your company in the same way? Do you view having the same responsibility to get pay right for that, for that fry cook as you would for the chief marketing officer? You know, it's saying there's they should get paid the same, of course. But what I'm saying is that do you view all of these people as your responsibility as a, as a head of HR? And, um, you know, have been... Please in some, with some leaders, uh, the answer is then yes. And others, I, I just haven't, you know, in terms of it very clearly, they just don't, they just don't take it seriously enough. Like I, if you are a CEO or a chief HR officer, if you do not know what the lowest person in your company is paid, you've messed up. You should know this at all times because this should be a number that you just always have in the back of your mind to say, Hey, am I comfortable with this? Or is this a structural problem that I need to try and address? So that's just one thing that I think people should take on. And the last is power. And this is where I might get a bit controversial, especially for U.S. audiences. Like sometimes the structures just break, the powers get imbalanced, and this is where things like unions do that. I, I could appreciate that is a, that is maybe a hot take for some people, but like I think HR leaders would do really well for themselves to go read a bit about union history. I can appreciate there are many different forms of unions. There are many different ways of operating. A, a co-determination board in Germany looks very different than a, the sort of individual negotiation for blanking on the exact phrase, but the way we have in the U.S. where you have to do it at the uh, employer level instead of as a sector, a sector like you might have in Australia or other places. But just go read about this stuff and say, hey, you know, do you like an eight hour day? Do you like weekends? Like, hey, where do you think that came from? Everybody, I think, should read a book by Stephen Greenhouse, called kind of beaten down, worked up. I think, you know, if you've run out of things to watch on Netflix, like this could, some of the stories about uh, labor history could create just infinite series because the stories are so unbelievably fascinating. So if you are a history buff or just want to get better in HR, you should know your history. And I think this is where I'm not necessarily making a total pro or total con statement here about unions, but you should know this and you should consider broadening your perspective no matter where you fall on that spectrum. So those are the four Ps. And I think all four have to be working together for people to view the pay environment as being fair.
0: I think it's a really good model and I think all of your points are really valid and, you know, across whether it's power, permission, the priority. I think, you know, if you really are a good HR leader and you're really trying to build a great workforce that people are engaged and want to be there and committed, you have to do all those things. Because when you start to have mistrust on pay or how you're treating people, that's when the negative cycle kind of starts to happen, right? And you have unionization. You have turnover, right? Because people are feeling they're being taken advantage of. At the end of the day, it's really an employee value exchange, right? What do I get for working here? And what am I going to give you for your time and effort as well, right? It has to be a good mix. And when those get out of balance, I think what you described really starts to happen. That's
1: exactly right. So it doesn't need to be antagonistic, but it's, again, are you honestly, are you treating people well? That's what it comes down to. And this goes right into the me treating people well means that I view every person in my company as equivalently human with dignity. And that translates directly into how they take care of themselves and their families, which is directly into pay.
0: David, I couldn't have you on the podcast if I didn't ask your advice for next generation HR leaders who are looking to negotiate a pay raise in their current role or maybe next role. What advice do you have on how to get the most money in that next pay raise discussion?
1: Well, for HR leaders in particular, like you should be better positioned than anybody else in the company, right? Because you theoretically, if you're doing a good job as an HR leader, you know how your comp programs are put together, right? You know where the data comes from. You might even have access to this in the surveys that are used depending on the company. So I would say it has to start with knowing the policies in your company. Are you going to ask for something that that is just totally not feasible? Or are you going to ask for something off-cycle? If you're going to ask for something off-cycle, then the burden of proof on you is so much higher than it might be during the than a typical annual pay review or biannual, whatever it may be. But, you know, I think more broadly, I'm seeing less companies wanting to negotiate pay. And I think for some companies, this comes from a place of like, well, they just have all the powers. So That's OK. But for other companies, I think it comes from a healthier place of, well, I don't want my pay determinations to be based on whoever the smoothest talker is in the interview process. Or I don't want it based on, well, did I, did I happen to get the recruiter when they were super tired and they just said yes, you know? Uh So some companies will say, well, here's our standard for this role. We don't negotiate. This is what our role is and this is what it makes. I think that can, if done correctly, I think that can come from a very healthy place. But if the HR person is trying, or anybody else is trying to get access to more funds, I think it starts with, do you know your pay range and where are you on that pay range? If you are new in role, you've been recently promoted, you shouldn't expect to be at the very top of the pay range. It doesn't matter how unbelievable your, poten- your potential is. Most common people are just going to say, This person's been in role six months. Why do they think they should be paid like the person who's been doing the role successfully for 12 years, you know? And so I think having a realistic assessment of where you're at in your career is super healthy. There's lots of tools online now. Comprehensive.io, I think is probably the best resource for gathering all of the publicly available salary ranges. So there's more data than you've ever had before. So if you are an HR or not, but you're not a comp person, you don't have access to the proprietary data sets that I'm on as a comp leader, You have more info now. You you can go say, okay, let me size up my role realistically. Go see what a few other companies are paid. Make an assessment of what I'm paid relative to their ranges. And if I were to take this role, you know, given my experience at this company, I could expect to make X. And then go to your company and say, well, why am I not paid X? The answer might be our pay philosophy is different. And then you might be stuck or you might have to try and take that job at that other company. But I think there's so much more material now where you can frame a much better a sharper case to getting a pay increase. And that's one of the benefits of the paid transparency work that frankly is keeping people like me much more accountable.
0: Really good advice. What about from a candidate perspective and what's your advice on how to negotiate when you have received an offer? My advice in this
1: is always try and get as much cash as you can up front. Unless it's a startup and it really matters that you get a percent of equity because it might be worth an incredible amount. But if you're going to a big company, if you're going to a massive company, ask for things that are realistic. If you're at a company that's got ten thousand people, you're not getting custom vacation days. Like their systems just physically can't handle that. Like they're just going to say no. That's not how we do this. But you might be able to say that to get a cash sign-on, you might be able to go a bit higher in the range. The sign-ons typically are tied to something that you walked away from. So, like for example, if you have a bonus coming up in three months, uh, you if you leave the company, you're going to Not have it anymore, you could easily say, Hey, listen, I'm going to walk away from this bonus. Can you honor a a part of that bonus to get me to jump? I I would focus on getting cash for sure. And I still think, I think recruiters all hate comp people for saying this, but I believe it's true. It is not a good idea to share your salary expectations with a recruiter. So to be perfectly clear about it, it is the company and the comp person's job to make sure you're paid fairly on the way in. So if I have two people, if my pay range goes from, you know, 80,000 to 120,000 and I've got two people for a role and one is, you know, they they need 110 and the other is currently making 70. Like, yeah, I'm going to pay both 100 and I'm going to pay both 110. I'm not going to try and get that person cheaply because I know that if I've lowballed somebody as a good comp pro and I, if I've lowballed somebody, I know that I have a bigger problem that I have to solve later. I haven't solved anything. I've just created a harder problem for myself later. So I would much rather get it sorted at, at time of hire. Uh, and so that's why I also think some of these salary history laws are doing important work also. But I would not voluntarily give up your salary expectations. Just say something like, I don't know necessarily what your pay ranges look like. I don't know how you evaluate your new hire standards, what your policies look like. Pay range. If you are uh, if you are really experienced in that particular job, say, I see your pay range, I would expect to be paid toward the top end of that pay range. If that's true, then just go for it. doesn't matter how big the increase is. But if you've told them that you make 50 and that high in that pay range is 110, like go get that 110. You know what I mean? Like don't, don't sell yourself short on this because they've said that you can do this job and you believe that you can. So go for that. Go ask for that based on their own standards.
0: As you're talking about that, which I think is the common advice is to not do that. Most recruiters will push pretty hard to try to get that information, even though now it's illegal in a lot of states, the last salary expectations. But it also kind of reminds me of what's the worst advice for someone who's a candidate trying to negotiate a job offer. What is that, David, in your mind, like the worst thing you can do when you're trying to negotiate a higher salary? The worst thing, you know, I've never been into this question before.
1: So maybe the worst thing is like if you come in with uh, sort of multiple variations of what you would accept, uh, because like if you were saying, hey, I need all of this customized treatment to me, like you've automatically got a big red flag on you for me, because I'm like, OK, so this person isn't only going to ask for something extra special right now. They're going to ask for something every six months during the entire time that they're here. And so like if you have a comp philosophy that's working, you've got pay approaches that are working, but it just doesn't. Resonate with the person. If it's not fitting, like I would probably consider that a warning flag, uh, that this person's probably not going to last very long in your company because theoretically your comp program should be a self-selection mechanism for the person. They should have enough information to say, I want to work for this place and, and I'll sort of accept how they think about pay. Doesn't mean that I'm going to accept, you know, a lower number, but like the structure of it or all the customized things. Like I think that is going to start raising flags and. Because every think about this, every custom customization decision is going to require some level of advanced sign-off, right? So if I have to go to my chief people officer or CFO and say, hey, can I do this one really weird thing? They want a loan in addition to their compensation package. And by the way, they want a custom vesting schedule and oh, they want a private office, you know, and they're going to say, are we sure we want to hire this person? So I'd be really hesitant to start asking for a bunch of custom stuff. So Again, trying to get some cash up front, that you're joining a company because you want to be there for the long term, go prove yourself and you can ask for for some of those more
0: custom things later. That's such great advice. I think being really thoughtful about what your one or two asks are that you are yeah. going to want to come back to. Because if you start to be high maintenance to your point in that process, it's a red flag and the deal's not done, right? And I have seen companies walk away saying, you know what, I just don't think this is going to work because you're now showing us how you're going to operate when you're inside the company. David, last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years?
1: I think HR people have to be good storytellers. And I think the way we tell stories is going to change rapidly with technology. And what I mean by this is you need to know your business. You can't just be seen as a an administrative function that like, you know, enrolls people in various things or runs the learning process or whatever it may be. You need to know the core of your business and how it works and what the mechanics are. The other thing is high EQ, clearly telling stories is a very emotional, emotive thing. And so knowing the right way to frame the story at the right time is super critical. I would also say clearly data literacy. We talked about this earlier. Some HR people are a little bit scared of data and math and you just can't be. And finally, I think some of the tools are coming, and I work for an AI company now, so I get a bit of advanced foresight into what's coming. I would encourage everybody to be big readers. And, and here's what I mean by this. Don't just read business books. A lot of business books are really poorly written. They they say the same five stories over and over again. But like, go read widely. Go read different. Because what I think is going to be happening is with some of the tools, whether you use ChatGPT or any of the other sort of co-pilot assistants out there. To make those tools work really well, the sort of the new coding language is just your native speaking language. And so you might get a different result if if you are able to phrase what you're asking for in a unique way. And so people who are going to be really good at what we call prompt engineering usually are people who are deeply well read and they understand how to use these tools in ways that can manipulate the language and it it produces better results for them. So that might be a bit of a weird answer for you, but I'm trying to give you, HR people, some insight from the front lines of generative AI. Read, read, read. You know, I've always believed that kind of corny phrase, readers are leaders and leaders are readers. And I think that is never going to be more true than the next 10 years. I think everybody's focused on tech, but I think we might see rise of the English major coming out of this because they're going to be the ones that are really adept to actually using some of these tools.
0: David, that is fascinating. The future's HR storytellers and readers, and really they should read your book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build a Stronger Business. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your wisdom on compensation and total rewards. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR Podcast. Thanks again to David for challenging our perceptions on compensation and sharing his fair pay model. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Dr. Jean Twenge, who is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and the author of more than 180 scientific publications and books. Jean is a world-renowned expert on generational differences in technology, and she frequently gives talks and seminars based on a data set of 39 million people. In my conversation, we're going to dive deep into her new book, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and the Silence, and what they mean for America's future. Let's be honest, there's a lot of misinformation on the difference between generations. And in my conversation, Gene is going to help us set the record straight. You won't want to miss this episode. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.